Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I was lucky enough to interview friend of the podcast, the wonderful Ollie Lovell, and it's a cracker. But before that, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly supported by School Online. School Online is the destination for exam preparation in English and Maths. Whether you're preparing students for SATs or GCSE, their unique bite-sized video tutorials keep children engaged and coming back for more. Structured and delivered by the nation's top examiners, their platform enables students to develop independent and personalised learning to really target their areas for improvement. With interactive questions and instant feedback, teachers can move away from the administrative task of marking and instead focus on analysis of results, tracking student performance through the platform. As we all know, exams are back this year and they're coming up quick, but there's still time to make a big difference to outcomes for your students. Sign up today and get access to their six-week booster programme in time for those first exams. And how about this? Sign up today for a one-year subscription and mention Mr Barton Maths and you'll get the rest of the academic year absolutely free. So visit classroom.schoolonline.co.uk to find out more. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Back to today's episode with Ollie Lovell. Now, as you may well know, Ollie is a maths teacher from sunny Australia. He's also a head of department, a blogger, a research ravager, a pioneering podcaster, and a best-selling author. It's quite annoying people like that, really, isn't it? Anyway, this marks Ollie's fourth appearance on the show, today talking about his wonderful new book, Tools for Teachers. Now, during this conversation, we cover what has Ollie learnt in five years of his fantastic ERRR podcast, what is his new book about and who is it for, and then we discuss a few ideas from Tools for Teachers that we haven't focused on much on this podcast over the years, and they are regulation and relationships and leadership. And I'll tell you what, both are absolutely fascinating. Finally, I challenge Ollie to recommend either a podcast episode or something to read for three types of teachers a trainee or novice teacher, an experienced teacher, and a senior leader. As ever, Ollie does not disappoint. Now, before we crack on, just a reminder that I've launched a brand new and completely free website, Tips for Teachers. Do you reckon I could sue Ollie with that, with his tools for teachers, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, Tips for Teachers. So on Tips for Teachers, you'll find chunks of gold from the likes of Dylan William, Tom Sherrington, Harry Fletcher Wood, and many more. Each of the tips is is available as a podcast, but also as short videos that you could share in departmental meetings or during inset sessions, or just a cosy Friday night in by the TV. Just visit tipsforteachers.co.uk to dive in. 
Anyway, let's get going with today's episode. Get your pen and paper at the ready and let me introduce Ollie Lovell. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I'll see you on the other side. Okay, Ollie, welcome back to the podcast. Um, how's everything with you? Pretty good, Craig, and it's it's wonderful to see you again. It's really exciting to be back on. Now, let's go a little behind the curtain here. So we've uh, we've just been doing a bit of setup here. Um, I use a recording program uh, platform called Zencaster. What name did you put, Ollie, uh, for your name when you uh, logged into the platform? Just to give the listeners a bit of a an insight into your character here. <laughs> oh no, Craig! I didn't th- think you'd throw me under the bus like this. I will be honest though. Uh, when when signing up, I had the opportunity to, to nominate my my name, and I called myself the Better Podcaster. I'm I'm just annoyed Zencaster didn't reject that as some kind of spam or something or falsehood. But uh, yeah, anyway, then I have to come back. And and we were actually having tech issues, so we we switched to a different podcasting software for a while. While didn't we, Craig? And and what did you call yourself on on the second sign in? Well, as a comeback, I said the original podcaster. So I think I got in there maybe yeah, a good few a few months or so before uh, before you started. Got to pay that. Absolutely, got to pay that. <laughs> All right, well, mate. Well, you were back on. I was looking this up. January two thousand and twenty-one. You were you were on the show. We we're talking cognitive load theory. Yeah, what have you been mm-hmm. up to since then? Lots. I feel like this is perhaps the hardest question that you're going to ask me today, Craig, because <laughs> I've just absolutely been run off my feet. But I mean, one of the exciting things I've been doing, which is we'll be talking about today, is working very hard on this this book that's about to come out, um, Tools for Teachers. That's taken up most of my mornings for the better part of that that whole time period. Um, I started a PhD, which wow. is pretty exciting. Yeah. So I'm working with, uh, I know you, you're familiar with the work of John Dunlosky. Um, he's one of my supervisors and Alexander Renkel as well. So that's really exciting. Wow. Um, doing some, doing some cool stuff with them. I actually had a, had a meeting with them this morning. Um, what's it on Ali? Uh, I'm looking at self-regulated learning. So essentially right. trying to help students become better learners. Um, very big topic. It sounds a lot more grand than it is. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really interested in, in moving in that direction and especially given the way the world is with so much great available information for students to kind of tap into if, if we can help them do that in a more self-regulated way i think i think we opened a lot of doors for them um i i launched uh for pre-sale an online course on cognitive load theory a couple of days nice. ago so i've been working hard on that and thinking about you know um what's going to give the most value to people in terms of a longer form introduction to clt if, if the book you know they want to consolidate after the book and things like that uh and then yeah a bit of mountain biking trying to trying to surf and falling off the board a lot um yeah, and just and really enjoying my new school as well. Having a great of time. Of course, you, yes. Yep, you, you, you just you moved job, hadn't you? Yeah, Bryn and I. Um, and that was, yeah, I've just been having a blast at, at, at my new school as well. And you're four days a week um, at your school and then one day a week to kind of fit in all your other stuff. Is that right? You got it. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, before we dive in talking about your book, I just want to reflect on your podcast because there was an anniversary uh, recently. Now, I should say every time I mention your podcast, I drop off one of the R's. So I'm going to get this right. You you have a real catchy way of saying it. You said the R podcast, whereas I, I tried to go for E-R-R-R-R-R. And I either have too many R's or too few R's. So I'm going to I'm going to go with you, E-Triple-R. So you had five years of the podcast uh, recently and you do one a month, so 60 episodes, if my math mm-hmm. is right. So first off, congratulations. And what keeps you doing? the the show Ollie after five years thanks Craig well it's 
I mean, one of the one of the key things that kind of drives me is just continual learning. And there's nothing better to get you actually reading stuff and processing it deeply than the pressure of talking to the person <laughs> who wrote it because you don't want to sound like an idiot when you ask them a stupid question. Um, so really, just just the motivation to keep on learning and, and the absolute privilege of being able to question an author about their ideas. Like it's, mm. it's kind of ruined other books for me now because I'm like, why would I read that book? I don't get to <laughs> interrogate the author at the end of it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the main thing, just, just the learning and, and, the, and the connections it, it builds. Like it's, it's amazing to, you know, to be able to have conversations with people like of your caliber, for example, Craig, you know, to be able to actually jump on um, and have a chat. And, you know, we always have a, have a bit of fun beforehand, the, before the interview and a chat after, and it's, it's fantastic. That's brilliant. And you, you I, I always get the sense from you, Ollie, that you do a tremendous amount of prep um, for, for your interviews. You're always, you've clearly read the book uh, for a start. You've often, you can then call in other things, whether it's other articles that they've referenced or whatever. And just give us a bit of a sense of how you're prepping for, for some of these interviews. Yeah. So generally it's, it's, um, it's just reading the book and it's reading the book as if I'm talking to the person they're presenting the ideas for me so i just try to i I write down the questions as i go if it's a hard copy i'll just write Mm. them in the margins um if it's a digital copy i'll generally just have a google doc open at the same time and i'll just yeah do that and then if there's tangents to explore along the way and i see something i disagree with or have questions about i'll just explore that tangent make some notes things like that so yeah generally it's 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 a very very laborious process it takes a long time um but but it's fun and it's rewarding and it forces me to to um to really process the information deeply as well. That's great. And um, by the time this goes out, you'll be in the sixties in terms of your your episode numbers. Are you still getting nervous uh, before before guests? I think I think I stopped getting nervous around I don't know probably even episode ten or something. Um, so yeah, it's not really nerves anymore. It's more just a bit of excitement and anticipation to to get get it started. Do you get, I get nervous about the tech issues. Like I, I can only relax whenever I know that there isn't a lag and we're, we've, I've got the first question out of the way and it seems like that. That's when I go, ah, okay, now I can start enjoying, enjoying it. Is it the same for you? Is, is tech, does kind of tech concerns play a role? That's a great point, actually. I think generally I just forget that tech, I have, we have tech issues and then we have them and then I stress out about it when it happens. But I generally just, but it's, it's true. It's true. It happens so frequently. And um, my recent podcast with Margaret McCown, we literally spent half an hour trying to get the tech working and just yeah. quit, just quit and rescheduled. Because, but like, you know, luckily she had time to do that, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. So yeah, that is definitely something to get nervous about. I'll tell you what changed it for me. So early on, this must have been about oh God, four years ago, something like that. I interviewed a guy called John Corbett, who has the Corbett Maths website, really popular website over here. And we recorded for just over three hours, and it was a really good interview. And then I said goodbye to him. It's late at night, and I said good night. And I just thought, just before I go to bed, I'll just check the files are there and everything. And just no files were there. And right. I thought, what uh, the hell has happened here? So um, he was he was quite upset about it, and we we. He, at first, he didn't want to re-record for understandable reasons. Then, eventually, yeah. he said, "Yeah, and we, we redid it, and it was fine." But ever since then, I, I can't, I never fully relax because even like here, I'm looking at, I can see it's recording, yeah. but I don't know when we press stop. There's always a chance it's just not there, and I just, yeah. oh, where, yeah, it's it's tough, isn't it? Oh, mate, it's it's a massive stress, and I've just changed. Um, after that Margaret McCown incident, um, 
I've just changed softwares as we were talking about beforehand. And I this all the softwares I was testing, like this one, yeah. Zencaster, what I was doing was I was getting my partner on. We would have a call and then I'd just like stuff something up as much as I possibly could. Like <laughs> yeah, I, while yeah. we were recording, I'd just restart my computer and then see where the file went. And because that that's what it's, it is, you're right. It is a massive worry. Because if oh, you lose one that... Sec, sorry to stop. One sec, I'll eat. Right, as I warned you, Isaac, come here, little man. As I warned you, my little boy. Is, whether we keep this in or not, who knows? Come here, come and say hello. And this is Daddy's friend, Ollie. There you go. And here's hello, Isaac. Isaac. He's waving to you there. You wave back. Nice you to meet you. Up. <laughs> Did so you have Daddy's a nap? His, yeah, he's just, just woken up here, Ollie. I so just Daddy's had a nap as well, actually. His, Daddy's just doing his podcast, and then I'll come down and play. Is that okay? Is that all right? Daddy's talking here. What do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah, do you wanna do you wanna say anything else? Yeah. I don't know. You don't know. Well that's okay. That's okay. Right, so um are you okay just to go back and see mummy and then daddy'll come down in a bit. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay, say bye bye to Ollie. Bye bye. Hi Isaac. <laughs> there you go. Sorry about that, mate. That's uh, that a disaster written all over it, that, because I'm trying to explain that I can't play with him this morning, blah, blah, blah. So the tears are about to start, but it'll, uh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But, um, but I want to say, say, Craig, yeah. that was awesome. Like, because, you know, I have these memories myself of going into my dad's office when he was working and, you know, he would never tell me to go away. He would never say, you know, I'm too busy. He would always say, oh, hi, Ollie, come in, sit on my lap. This is what I'm doing here. Yeah, now would you nice. go and do something? You know, and, and I think so many people when they're doing busy, when they're feeling under the pump, they don't make the time to just have that really small connection that you just had with Isaac, welcoming into your, him into your world, helping him feel a part of it, but then also setting that boundary. Um, so that was just awesome to see. Thanks. Thanks oh, for letting me be part of that. <laughs> that's, well, we've just started doing uh, he's into YouTube as all three year olds are so we've just started recording our own uh, mini YouTube videos now so he quite likes coming to the oh, computer really? and we do a bit of recording and stuff so yeah I'm hoping to turn him into that's a money making machine is, is the uh, is the oh, plan man. going forward what a dream <laughs> What would you say, Ollie? And it's a bit, a bit of a sneaky question, this. But what's been your most challenging interview? And I don't mean in terms of like a guest you didn't like or anything, or however you want to interpret it. Well, I mean, one of the one of the interviews that really launched the podcast um, onto onto the international scene was my interview with John Hattie. Yes, um, yes. Because that was the, and that one which followed my interview with Adrian Simpson, who critiqued. John Hattie. So this was a very, very scary podcast for me because John had been and has remained to be a really great mentor and support for me. I, I, I met him when I was at uni because he, he taught at the University of Melbourne where I went. And um, basically, I was like, come on my podcast. I'd love to do my best to tear apart your life's work. <laughs> uh, uh, so... So like one, I had to feel like I, I knew my stuff and then, and, and two, like I was just worried that he'd never want to talk to me ever again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then following that, which was even more scary was I published a blog post, um, you know, effect sizes, robust or bogus, um, which further dissected the podcast um, and, and just kind of lay, lay, laid my cards out or laid out Adrian Simpson's cards that I'd stolen from him um, more honestly. Um, yeah, so that was that was really challenging and very scary. But you know, John, to his credit, he 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 gave he gave some great answers, and he's um he's been very humble, and he's he's we've had great chats since, and we 
continue to have a good relationship. So yeah, all's well that ends with it. Well, I guess. Do you find um, just on this, because I've had similar things where I go into an interview with not an agenda is kind of the, 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 I think is the wrong word. I try not to anyway, but I have something that I disagree with, with the guest about versus where I'll have someone like, let's say Dylan William on the show where he's, he's, he's so much smarter than me that I, I tend to agree with everything he says. And I always find that, that it's quite I try and find an area of disagreement throughout the interview just so, because I think that's that's more interesting for, for the listeners as opposed to just kind of wheel out your greatest hits. Do, do, you, do you find that, um, that there are kind of, sometimes you go in there and you hope you can find something to challenge the guests on versus somewhere it's, it's, it's a lot clearer what the challenge is going to be? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And, and in you know, in the opposite way, some of the, mo- one of the other most challenging interviews I've had was the recent one with Anita Archer, because it was like that. Like I was reading her book and her work has influenced so many, so much subsequent work and her work came from before much of it. But yes. then I've interviewed lots of people who've built on her work. So going back to her work, it was like, oh, you're telling me the foundations of stuff we've, we've covered. And it was about trying to find something. It's like, well, yeah, everything you say is great. It makes sense. It's like, there's no controversy there. That's not a story. A story has got to have like a twist and a challenge. Right. Um, so yeah, we, I just tried to find some kind of a little add on bits that complemented what we'd already covered about explicit instruction in the podcast. But yeah, I a hundred percent agree because that, that challenge is, is what makes it interesting in many ways. That's great. That and I just before we move on from the podcast, just to mention what, a couple of episodes. One of them was the Anita Arch one. I thought that was a brilliant episode. Um, I, I was obviously interested in in the kind of the foundations and history of explicit instruction, anyway. But the way you and you often do this in your interviews, where you do the kind of role play stuff, I think that's superb. And we'll talk about that technique throughout the book as well, with the use of scripts in the book. But the role play is such a powerful technique to use in the podcast because. It's, it allows the listener, certainly speaking from my own perspective, to, to really get a sense of how this might play out in the classroom or in the departmental meeting or whatever. It's, and, and it works super well in the Anita Archer episode. I, I really, really enjoyed that. And I, the other one where I thought it worked so well was when you have Michael Pershing on as well, where you were really pushing him to see what this worked example process would look like. So I, no question here, but I, I really, really like the use of um, the, the role plays and stuff. Are, are you guess are always up for that, by the way? Do you always give them a bit, a bit of a heads up that a role plays out? I, I, I generally do. I generally do give them a heads up. But um, also, I'm more of one of those people. I, I kind of just expect people to do what I say, which <laughs> yeah, is a good yeah. thing for teachers because, like, have have that expectation, you know. But generally, uh, people are really well. Probably, probably a better way to put it, rather than do what I say, I ex- I, ex- I I anticipate that people will um, be happy to accept an authentic invitation to kind of engage in that. Um, yeah, and and it's similar. It's kind of like we do we do a fair bit of instructional coaching at the school that I'm working at now. And it's a similar thing, you know, often coaching will be, you just have a talk about, Oh, you should try this strategy in the next lesson. Or you may like to try this strategy in the next lesson. The teacher's like, Oh yeah, I'll do that. And it's like, okay, see you later. But it's actually about taking to the next level and say, okay, let's have a look at what that would look like. I'm the student, blah, blah. And you don't say let's role play play now. If you just kind of jump into it and say, okay, let's see what that looks like. I'm the student. You're up there. You're teaching me this. What would you say? People are kind of like, they hesitate for a second and they go, okay, we're doing this. And they just kind of go along for the ride. Yeah, it's nice. It's a really, really nice technique. I like that. And the other episode I want to mention, and I've, I, listeners will be sick of me banging on about this, but the, the Sammy, Sammy Kempner, uh, Kempner episode, 
Ollie, that was amazing. Hey, like that, that, that's what you almost dream as. I, I do anyway, as a podcast host of getting a kind of in inverted com- commas an unknown on there in the sense that it wouldn't be as, I wouldn't have as, as high a public profile as some of the other guests you have on there. And the whole episode was just, he's just dropping pearls of wisdom. There's just gold just kind of spewing out of his mouth. I thought that was an incredible episode. And the other thing I'll say about that is I found it challenging because he definitely would run a department and teach lessons in a way that was very different for, from how I would. So I, mm. you must have loved that episode. Yeah, Sammy was amazing. And and one of the one of the interesting things was that was one of the easiest ones for me to prepare for because he didn't have a book for me to read. He just had like yes. a quick you know document and some cu- curriculum examples. And so I read it and then it meant that I had so many questions. And of so course. what you were actually hearing was you, you were literally hearing an authentic exploration of what he was doing because I didn't get it yet. And so I was really just de- diving deep. And because I could tell that what he was doing was so good, I was really hungry to know exactly how he was doing everything. Um, so, yeah, Sammy's amazing. And to, also to his credit, Sammy is like um, super focused on his teaching. Right. Mm. So what I'm what I mean by that is, you know, you and I, we run podcasts, Craig, we try to write books and do all this other stuff, which excites us for Sammy. Like I was like, oh, let's do some more stuff. Let's write, write some of this stuff up. And he was like, oh, nah, I've got to I've got to focus on my teaching. I'm running the department this year. And I was like, we're doing the holidays. He was like, nah, I need my break so I can be, return to my teaching refreshed. Jeez. And I was like, good on you, man. That's awesome. Yeah, like, that is good. That's fantastic. We need so many people who are that committed to their teaching and also committed to having the breaks that they need to rejuvenate. Yes. So yeah, hat off to Sammy in so many ways. That was great. Um, well, last question about this, uh, about the podcast, although we'll circle back to it when we're talking about the book. Um, any world exclusives here? Can you tell us some of the guests you might have coming up in the future or anyone in the pipeline that you, you're trying to get hold of? Um, there's, 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 there's too many in my head and not enough organized. (laughs) Let's put it that (laughs) way. There's like so many people I want to interview. Um, and so many people whose work I want to read. Something I want to get into more is a lot of the, like the really quality, um, learning science stuff. So let me, let me let me have a look at, at at my list. Now you're really going behind the scenes. So I've got a list. I've got a list of fifty people who I want to have on the podcast wow, here. Wow, jeez. Um, but you know, people people like um, Robert Nisbet, Anthony Brick, um, Roger Shank. Um, the, these kind of uh, who else we got? Alan Collins. So people who have um, really contributed to learning science, school culture, like a lot of the, the giants of who of, mm. of earlier years, I guess. Um, I just, I want to read their work and I want to see where they come from. I, I also want to do some stuff on like old theorists, like Vygotsky and Piaget and stuff oh, okay. like that. Because like, I just, I haven't explored that work as, enough. And like, you know, whilst a lot of it may have kind of been superseded by various ideas of, of cognitive science and things like that, I feel like there must be something in those, in that stuff like yeah. that that has caused these ideas to stick around and even if it's just to understand why they stuck around when they when they shouldn't have or or what we missed or something like that i really want to delve deeper but it's just a matter of finding the time and someone who's willing to to talk to me about it <laughs> of course that sounds great that sounds brilliant oh right let's turn our attention to your book then so tools for teachers so uh, kind of a bit of a bit of a bland question to open up with but an important one um what's the book about and who's it for ollie yeah 
So Tools for Teachers is a kind of five-year anniversary book of the Each Blog podcast, but it's also um, kind of a, a book that just summarizes my own experiences in the classroom and 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 contributing to the running of departments and things like that. So yeah, it's 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 for everybody, which I, I know many people would say <laughs> is a horrible way to market anything because you you've got to have your niche, Craig. You've got to have the target. But but really, I was just like, you know, I've, it's five years in. I've interviewed so many amazing people, and it. it I really want to do justice to their work by by trying to bring it all together. That's brilliant, that. Now, um, again, we, we've similar um, kind of influences and interests that we, we've chatted about over the years. So I wonder what type of books you had in mind, both inside and outside the world of education, that you wanted to try and emulate or take certain features of when, when you were putting tools for teachers together. Yeah, so I guess a few things. Well, in your in your lovely comment that you've written about the book, Cray, you've 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 highlighted you, you you were very perceptive. You highlighted two people or two authors who I've have tried to emulate in many ways. One is Tim Ferriss. Obviously, he he had his book Tools for Titans or Tools of Titans. It was actually um, that inspired the name of Tools for Teachers, um, and you know, Tim's book brought together insights from his podcast over many years. Um, I actually thought about contacting you, Craig, and asking if I if I could steal your title of, and just call my book like "How I Wish I'd Taught" or something like that to oh, kind nice. of ride on your coattails. Um, For twenty percent, we could have we could have reached that agreement there, Ollie. That would be I okay, thought. That. I thought. Yeah, I thought you'd be a bit steep, Craig, which is why I didn't <laughs> didn't bother asking. Um, I was actually going to originally call it "Tools of Teachers," like "Tools of Titans." Ah, uh-huh, yeah, my, yeah. But my good friend Wendy, who reviewed the book, said that that made it sound like it was the teachers who were the tools. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. I was like, "Yep, didn't think about that. that probably won't go down <laughs> too well." Uh, and the other one, you said you said you'd put this book between that one and um, and next to Doug Limov's "Teach Like a Champion." And I have really just tried to make it an absolutely practical book. Mm. So yeah, it's it's in three parts. It's because the, the subtitles "How to Teach, Lead, and Learn." like the world's best educators. So the first part of the book is about teaching. So it's like chapter one is explicit instruction. Chapter two is behavior management. Chapter three is motivation. And chapter four is regulation and relationships. So what I've just tried to do is say, you know, when a new teacher steps into the classroom, what do they need to master first off? And it's just like explicit instruction is going to be your bread and butter. And that's what you've got to do. Um, And then the second section is lead. So it's looking about purpose of schools and the importance of considering purpose. Um, curriculum and leadership, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit today, but based on the question you sent me. And then the last one's learn, which is about, so we've got teach, lead, learn. Learn is about reading and evaluating education research. That's great. So it's a good hit list uh, of uh, kind of big topics in the content. So I really like that. Now, I'll, the, the problem here is that we could we could spend all day or certainly all episodes speaking about each of these chapters in turn. But I wanted to pick out something a, a bit different here. So I, I love speaking about explicit instruction. I love talking about motivation. But we, we've kind of covered those areas um, with various guests over the years on the podcast. So I want to pick out two that we've we've hardly covered at all. And the first one was um, regulation and relationships. The, this word regulation it pops up a lot whenever I whenever I'm on Twitter or when I when I read books and stuff. But I've never done a real deep dive in uh, onto it until I I started reading your book. So I thought. Thought it would be a good one to share with the listeners. So just as a bit of a kind of a high level question or overview, what do teachers need to know about regulation and relationships on? Yeah, thanks, Craig. And 
I think you make a good point there because I was very much the same as you. Like I'd, I'd seen it thrown around, but I hadn't really taken a deep dive until I had some some of these guests on my podcast. Um, also, another a disclaimer, I guess, you know, I'm not an expert in any of this stuff. Um, I'm just synthesizing ideas of, of great guests that I've had on the podcast. Um, so I guess I can start with talking about where this chapter sits in the book. So like I said, we start off with explicit instruction. And the basic idea is that High quality explicit instruction is going to capture the majority of the students in your classroom. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of schools in Australia who've who've moved to an explicit instruction model and they say, you know, behavior management issues go down, attendance goes up. There's there's so many benefits from just high quality instruction. So that's the first chapter. And it's like when you get that right, you're still going to have a, probably a few behavior management mm. issues though. So that's where chapter two comes in. So chapter two is like once you've got your instruction sorted, Here's some tips for behavior management so you can really just nip things in the bud and create that that safe and productive classroom environment. But then still, there's going to be some of those students who you don't reach. So that's why the motivation chapter comes next. It's like, what tools do we have for those students who've fallen through those first two kind of yes. gaps? Um, and, you know, how can we motivate them? And then chapter four is even further down. So I've spoken to some teachers who say, like, you know, the standard approach, uh, you know, is going to work for 95% of students, but there's going to be that 5%, I don't know, that's just a made up number, but there's going to be that small percent for whom, you know, they need a lot more support. So that's why this yes. chapter regulation and relationships is really here. Um, and, and it all so came, I was important, I was interested to explore these ideas as well, because a question I've always wrestled with in the classroom, you know, you have, you have those students who are kind of playing up or they just, you just can't seem to get through them. Yeah. And they're just playing up all the time. And you think to yourself, is it their fault? Like, can they actually help themselves? Or is this just something that they can't actually control, right? So exploring these issues is a part of trying to answer that question for me. Like, is it my fault or is it their fault? Are they just choosing to do this stuff or can they not help it? Um, obviously, it's not a binary yes or no question. It's a deep one, but hopefully um, understanding more about these topics can help us to, to more sensitively answer that question. So the you said what are, the, what are the important things for teachers to know about regulation and relationships. In the chapter, there's kind of four big ideas that I share and then they, I, I break them down further um, with practical takeaways and things like that. So the first one is that stable relationships are the foundation of self-regulation. So this comes from an idea called attachment theory. And basically, it's the idea that things such as our sense of worth our ability to recognize our own emotions and our ability to deal with our emotions come from safe and stable early relationships. So from, for some examples of that, you know, our sense of worth, um, imagine, you, you know, Isaac's just there, he's crying or something. <laughs> if you ignore him, you implicitly send the message to him, you are not worth caring about. Yeah. Right? But if, you, if when he cries and you go to him and you say, what's up, buddy? or whatever word you use over there in your <laughs> accent, chap, what would you call him? Uh, maybe mate, I'll go for a bit mate. of an Aussie one though. Yeah, what's mate, up mate? there you go. What's up mate? Um, you tell him that, you know, when he's upset, he's worth attending to. And so that's where a large part of his self-worth is going to come from. Also his ability to recognize emotion. So when you see him and he's looking a bit down, you say, oh, you're looking a bit down, mate. Or you say, when he's happy, you're looking a bit happy. Or, oh, you're looking a bit confused by the parent or the guardian 
naming those emotions, the young uh, person learns to recognize them in themselves. And then in terms of dealing with those emotions, when you um, support him, when you kind of help him when he's struggling, when you help him talk through and think through the challenges he's going through, you support him to learn that when something goes wrong, it's not a, it's not a reason to have a massive freak out. It's just a nat natural part of life and it's something that will pass. So that's the first idea. Stable relationships are the foundation of self-regulation. The second idea is that trauma undermines that trauma mm. undermines these uh, ability to regulate um, and recognize emotions in ourselves so this usually comes out in three three ways um, there's hyper arousal which is the fight or flight where students kind of just lose the ability they really just go into that reptilian kind of part of their brain they really struggle to bring things back this can also be dissociation so they basically lose in some ways their sense of reality and i saw that recently on a um on a school camp actually it was, it was it was it was quite interesting but once you learn about these things you can kind of sense it a little bit more and yes. um often often we see students as like forgetting their pen or or just like totally being out of it and we think they're not paying attention or they're just being aloof and we're like snap out of it but sometimes they can actually be deeper than that um and then there's also shame which can which can be a huge issue mm -hmm. for people as well which i could talk about a bit more um so that was a second idea. So tra trauma undermines that regulation. The third big idea is relationships are crucial to healing trauma. And this kind of makes sense because if safe and stable relationships in the first place are, are what sets up that safe and stable attachment, and then people have trauma, which may be in the form of neglect or, or something else like that, then it makes sense that it's within safe and stable relationships that we're able to rebuild um, those, yes. those strong connections and that regulation and that safety. Um, and then the third idea, which is kind of where the kind of practical, where I fit the practical strategies under is that regulation and relationships are built both proactively and reactively. So there's the things we can do preventatively to help um, students regulate and, and have safe, stable relationships. And there's things that we can do in reaction to students struggling with those things. Got it. Fantastic answer. And it, it's, it's really interesting because as I was reading that chapter of the book and I took, I, I took like a real deep dive into the, um, the, the two big ones that we're going to talk about regulation relationships and leadership. As I'm reading it, I'm thinking, wow, okay. I, I wasn't aware of all this stuff, but all the time I'm thinking, and I always do this. I'm a, I'm a terrible reader for this. I'm always thinking, okay, but what do I do with this? What does this mean to me? How's this going to influence what I'm going to do as a teacher? And then it's really nice that that, that all comes at, uh, comes at the end. And that's what you did so well with your cognitive load theory book. It's, it's always, it's the theory, but then it's always, okay, so now what do we do with this? Well, what, how does this play out in the classroom? So I thought that was really great. Um, I want to dive into all the practical stuff. But first, I just tell you a bit of a story, right? So I'm, um, you sent me the book um, as a PDF initially, so I could um, when I, so I could uh, read it and then and send you a, a comment for it. So I was re reading it on my iPad as as a PDF prepping for this interview, and I thought, okay, let's go back to that regulations and relationships. And I was just flicking through, and I came across this brain breaks the, the idea that you talk about. <laughs> And I was like, whoa, what is this here? Because if you if you just dip into that without the kind of without knowing the sequence of what's led up to it, without realizing that actually this is aimed at your students for whom, as you say, you haven't been captured by explicit instruction, the motivation thing hasn't worked and so on and so forth. If you just dive in and see this in isolation, you're thinking, what is Ollie banging on about here? Is it because this this notion of brain breaks? where it's, it's almost something from, from the start of my teaching career, whenever like brain gym was knocking around, I'm thinking, oh, what is Ollie, what's happened to Ollie here? Just, just <laughs> tell us a little bit about this, this, this brain breaks, because it, it does sound a bit strange, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one of the interesting things is if if you think about how you work, Craig, so when you're really working hard and you're and you're trying to write a book or do a plan a lesson or a presentation or a podcast or something like that, you and anyone else who's an effective worker and able to work for long periods of time, you develop a natural sense of like when you're focused and when you're not yeah. focused. And when you're when you start to fade, like you need to change something up. Yes. Right. You need to go get a cup of tea you know, go for a jog, have an afternoon nap, my favorite thing to do, or do any number of other things that kind of re-energizes you. And it's the same thing in the classroom. You know, our students, very few students can can kind of keep up with really, really intense pace mm. instruction, especially in the younger years, for, 50, for even a 50-minute period. And so as teachers often will we'll notice when the class starts to like yes. lose it. And so you know, when that, when that happens, we can either kind of crack the whip and say, you know, oh, come on, stop being distracted, blah, blah, blah. You're going to get a detention, whatever it might be. Or we can say in, in relating back to what I was saying before about helping people recognize emotions in themselves, you look a bit tired or you're looking a bit distracted. We've focused for a long time. It might be a good time for us to have a break. And so in doing so, you help students recognize that in themselves, understand that taking mm -hmm. a break is an okay thing. Um, and then, and then you can kind of conduct or, or facilitate a break. So yeah, there's heaps of things you can do for, for brain breaks. Um, some of the things I like to do is like clapping exercise. So you can just do like, and then the kids like clap back and then you go, and then they try to do that. So yeah, it's just like a bit of a rhythm thing, which is, which can be fun. Um, there's game, like I'm, I'm at an all boys school now. So I often just do things like, let's just do 20 pushups. Right. And it's like, drop and give me 20. And they actually enjoy that. They're like, oh, we get to do push ups in maths class. Um, kind of stuff like that. There's, you know, tricky stuff like, you know, that change your hands and you touch your nose and your oh, ears. Oh, yeah, yeah. Change around thing. Like anything that kind of just gets them out of their head um, can be really, really good. I often just have a couple of soft balls in the classroom and I'll just open, open my backpack, which I use to carry my stuff between the classes. I sit on a chair at the front and we just play like, Bar bag skit ball, I call it. You like got to throw the ball into the bag. Just anything to get them out of their head. And then you just say, we're going to do this for two minutes. And then, you know, make sure you, I'll count down from 10 at the end of it and make sure you're in your, in your seat and ready to go. Um, and then they, they learn that it's, it's something fun to do and, and can all often re-energize the class. See, it's fascinating. Well, what, well, the reason I wanted to talk to you about this is I was reading this and I was almost starting to shiver a little bit, thinking I could not imagine doing this uh, in the classroom. But then, as all kind of good books and, and, and literature do, I was challenged to think, well, well, why not? Because I've certainly experienced that that you talk about, where it's like getting blood from a stone. You know the kids have just got nothing left in the system. They've been working hard on a task for 20, 25 minutes, and that summit needs to change, but I, I don't have, I, I don't know what that thing is to mm. change. And I'm always reluctant to give them this, what you term as brain break, or my version of it, because I think, well, how am I ever going to get the kids back? You could imagine if the, the balls are out, the balls are never going back in, in that bag or whatever, or clapping, I'm thinking, oh God. But it's, I mean, it must have felt a bit weird the first time you you, you tried this, and and it, does anything go wrong with it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it definitely was a bit s strange, but I, I got this idea of Tom Brunzel, who works in Berry Street, which is like a trauma informed positive education organisation here in Australia. And but when he when he talked about it, I, I immediately did. I thought that's a bit weird. I haven't done that. I haven't thought of doing that. But I thought actually that makes a lot of sense and I, actually I should probably be doing that. It's probably going to help me get more out of the kids. It's going to be a more positive yeah. experience for them. 
Um, yeah, look, it, it can sometimes be a little bit tricky to get him back. Um, but I think it's just a matter of, you know, rec- helping them to recognize that it's a privilege for them to have. It's not yes. something, um, it's, this is not something all teachers do and it's not something that I have to do with you guys. It's something that I want to do because I think it's going to help you develop the ability to regulate yourselves better and know when you need breaks when you're working yourselves, which is a healthy and productive thing for you to do and know how to do. Um, but, you know, we can also just try to push through, but I'd rather not do that. So let's make sure that when you come back, um, that when I do call you back, we come back in a focused way uh, and we come back quickly so that we can move on with a lesson, enjoy the break while we're having it, but then get, remain focused again. So yeah, priming and doing things like that can I think, can I think really help. I think can really help. That's great. I should say for listeners, it's there's a storm happening here. So if you're hearing a bit of kind of rain, it'll just add to the atmosphere of, of, of the podcast. I just want to dig a bit deeper into this, Ollie. Um, I I have this so a bit bit a bit of background here. When I when I wrote my first book, How I Wish I Taught Maths, one one bit of feedback I've I've had from it is that if you're a novice teacher reading it you haven't kind of gone through some of the the failures and mistakes that I've made. So perhaps it doesn't kind of resonate as much. And a lot of it, you may think, oh, well, I've, I've never dreamed of doing that. So I'm, I'm just, yeah, well, what's he banging on about here? I wonder whether something like Brain Breaks, is, is that something that would lend itself better to a more experienced teacher because they've they've got that that sense that, that they can focus on things like getting that sense of when the kids have had enough and they're ready to go on. Whereas perhaps a novice teacher, they've got so many other kind of things that they need to focus their attention on that this is quite difficult for them to notice something like that. Or, or do you think this is something that, that every teacher um, can do? Yeah, I think that's quite an insightful comment, Craig. I And I definitely would say that for myself, it took me a good few years of teaching to be able to recognize like where the vibe of the class was at because like I was just always in my head right I like had of a lesson course. plan you need to stick to the lesson plan I'm going to get through this much I'm going to do this example they're going to do this same example we're going to spend 10 minutes on this and like you're just much more regimented because you kind of have to be because you don't you haven't chunked and automated all those pro yeah. those teaching processes into your into your long-term memory so that it frees up your working memory to, to deal with in the moment stuff so I think it's a, it's a fantastic point and it's only now after I'm you know several years in that it's like oh, they're a bit tired and you turn around from yes. the board, you're working a question, you're like, oh, yeah, there's, you know, the eyes are starting to go or whatever it might <laughs> yeah, be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, great. Excellent point. And it's, again, it's a, by no means a criticism. It's just just something that I often consider myself. If you are a less experienced teacher, is there any way to kind of fast track yourself, do you think, to get to the point where you can start to implement strategies like Brain Break or some of the other things that, that you talk about in the book? Or is it some, do you, do you almost have to go through a couple of years of building up that, that experience, getting those systems automated? I, I often yeah. wrestle with this question myself. Yeah, well, basically, so from a cognitive load theory perspective, basically the more stuff you can do before the lesson, the more working memory space you'll have during the lesson. So if you're still struggling to understand the content, you're going to really struggle to understand the content, convey it to your students and manage the classroom at the same time. If you're still trying to remember students' names, um, you're going to really struggle to remember their names and and do all those other things as well. Um, If you don't know when the bill's coming, if you don't know uh, what page, whatever activity is. So I think just honestly being prepared is going to be your best friend in terms of brain bakes um 
I think I think in terms of doing the kind of regulated approach where you're sensing where the class is, I think that is definitely something for more experienced teachers. But for less experienced teachers, I'd say that it's definitely something worth thinking about as well. And what you could just do is, you know, ask your more experienced colleague, you know, we've got a 50-minute period. When do you find that kids usually start to yeah. fade? And just plan it, plan it out. Um, right now, this year, I've got some. I've got five boys in my class who come from remote communities in Australia, and they've had um, relatively patchy educational experience, and their ability to focus in their maths level is is really quite low. And so, what I've actually done with them is I've made a schedule for each class that gives them a scheduled break and more breaks than the other boys in the class. Uh, yes. Right. So, and and that actually really helps them to regulate themselves as well because they they know. You know, a break's actually coming up. Um, I can focus now for an extra three minutes because I know that I'm actually going to get a break in a couple of minutes. So for students who particularly struggle, having those scheduled breaks, I have found, can be beneficial as well. That's great, that all. And so would th- this would fit... Oh, and I should say, by the way, as well, as well as the regulation, I imagine that this is good for the relationship side of, of teaching as well because it's, as you say, it's, it's a fun thing to do. The kids enjoy it and stuff. They see perhaps a different side of you as a teacher. If you can get that right balance of, of them bringing them back, I'd imagine this is great for relationships as well. Yeah, 100%. And the, uh, some, something that's interesting that I've learned over time is you can be a real hard ass as well as do these fun things. Like yeah. I used to think you have to be like a fun teacher to do the fun things. Yes. But actually students totally understand and accept that if you're like, all right, let's play a game and you're like fun and animated and then you're like, all right, sit down. We're focusing now. I'm taking names like and just flick the switch yeah. and they're like, okay, yep, got it. Uh, I used to think that didn't work. but And also for me to actually be able to do that myself, I didn't usually feel that comfortable doing it. But actually students totally understand. Um, and I think it helps them. It helps them to see that you're regulating yourself as well and you can switch modes because that's something they need yes. to learn how to do as well. That's great, that all. So would brain breaks, would that fit into, is that kind of a proactive strategy? Is that in the proactive camp? Well, yeah, I guess it depends how you treat it. Um, I think yeah. I think in the book I put it in proactive. I can't even remember now. Yeah, but, I think But so. it, it could be pro or, or reactive, yeah. Um, any other, before we move on to the reactive ones, any, any more proactive uh, strategies that you'd throw out there that we, we could try? Yeah, well, I mean, there's 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 teaching students about the idea of regulation. So one of the things I include in the book, again, from that I learned from Tom Brunzel, is Dan Siegel's model hand brain model. Oh yes, um, it's a Tell bit hard to ex- it's a bit hard to explain on a podcast, but basically, different parts of the hand represent different parts of the brain, and you teach students that when they flip their lid, that is when they move from a, having a fist representing their brain to having kind of like an open hand representing their brain um the parts of their brain that are responsible for regulation kind of lose connection and lose their ability to help students to regulate um we'll, we'll i'll send you a link for a great explainer video craig and just help, using that model and just that simple phrase they don't need to know the names of the parts of the brain mm. though you can use them in the first place um the, ex- the expression of knowing what it means to flip your lid can be useful for students to say oh, you know, he's flipped his lid or I flipped my lid the other day. And just know that sometimes we do flip our lid. We kind of lose our ability to regulate ourselves super well, but there's things that we can do to bring things back under control. So teaching about regulation. Um, one of the other main things, I mean, providing structure is really helpful as well, just generally, but one of the other main things that, and the, the, the preventative thing that I started this with or this part of the chapter with is reject deficit theorizing. 
And this relates to one of my favorite episodes with um, Russell Bishop, who's done a lot of work with Maori students in New Zealand, um, the, the native indigenous people of New Zealand. And he talks about, and he's, he's, he's studied um, the education of indigenous or native or whatever the politically correct term is, wherever you may be in the world, um, people around the world. Um, and he's, he's, he's named this as one of the key things for people to focus on, reject deficit theorizing. Deficit theorizing is basically explaining um, the underachievement of a specific group of people based upon some intrinsic and unchangeable fact about them. Um, so he tells stories about going up to um, northern Canada and watching teachers teach in Indigenous schools there and seeing how they explain the underachievement of students oh. and recognising that the beliefs that they hold about the students, these kind of fixed beliefs, are actually what's help holding them back from being able to educate them in ways that are going to help them to achieve. Um, and this is something that Rachel McFarlane really emphasizes as well, um, who ran Isaac Newton Academy. It was a fantastic guest to have on the podcast too. So, yeah, just it's, 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 it's I guess the point there is about the way that we think about our students influences the way that we act act towards them influences the way mm. you know they sense the way that we think about them and we need to do what is often the hard work to yes. keep that positive belief in their achievement alive because if we don't do that you know they're used to they're used to sensing whether people are on their side or not and as soon as they sense they're not you're not on their side or you may not be on their side that's when the, the problems really compound. So I think that's probably the main idea around that preventative side of things. That's fascinating, this all. Um, I'll tell you what I was thinking as well, before we start talking about some of the uh, reactive strategies, is um, one of the big changes I made when I've, whenever I first started reading uh, research, and particularly when I started learning about cognitive load theory, limits of working memory, and so on, a mistake I made was just not telling the students about this and just changing my practice without any justification for it. And, and it didn't really stick with the kids. And then I, then I, I started experimenting just with a very simple model of working memory, a visual. And I could say to kids, okay, your, your working memory is limited. So we're going to do some different things to try and um, make sure you can focus as much attention as possible on the things that are going to make the difference. So I'm going to try silent teacher so that you can really focus on what I'm doing without having to try and process sounds and all this kind of thing. And what, when I started providing justification for it, I, I think it, it, it started to stick a bit more and the kids mm. were more on board. Um, but, and, and I get the feeling that when I'm reading some of this stuff, that it's really important for the kids to know why, why you're doing some of the things that, that you're doing, and particularly when you talk about the flip the lid thing and also the brain breaks. Um, would, would that be fair, Al, that the, the, the justification has to come alongside these, these strategies? 100%, Craig. And there's, I mean, it's probably something that I didn't emphasize in the book enough, but um, the research term for it is informed training. So training nice. where you actually inform the learner about why they're doing it. Right. And I, I recently did a literature review for the British Council on self-regulated learning. And that was one of the key findings. It's like you got to tell kids why, what you're doing and why you're doing it to get buy-in. Right. One of Pepsi yes. McCray's ideas about motivation is boost buy-in. And telling them um, why you're doing something is a, is a massive uh, way to boost that buy-in. So couldn't agree more. And it's also something that I don't do enough and I need to uh, focus on more in my own classroom practice as well. I'll tell you the other twist with this buy-in. So I've, I've start, I, I'm a bit obsessed at the moment with um, routines. I'm, I'm doing a lot of reading about routines. And pe again, Peps has been quite influential with this. 
um, he talks about, I don't know if you've read Atomic Habits. It's one of those um, kind of trendy um, kind of nonfiction self-help books that I actually really, really like. It's There's amazing. Really good amazing book. Yeah. yeah I, th- I think it's brilliant. Um, and what, what I found particularly interesting, and, and Peps, whilst I was reading this, Peps was tweeting um, something similar as well, is this notion of this um, this this valley of latent potential. You remember remember this one here when it comes to... I don't, to, actually. Comes to, don't yeah, it's, 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 it's good, this all. So it's this idea that when you're um, trying to embed a routine, so for example, I have a, when I use diagnostic questions with students, I have a definite routine for diagnostic questions where when the question's on the board, the kids are, are quiet, um, then they can do working out on their mini whiteboards. They're not allowed to look at other people's. They can't put their board up until I do a three, two, one, all these things. But when you're trying to establish this routine, performance dips in the short term because it takes a long time for this routine to yeah. be automated. And if you compare it to like a colleague uh, in the next classroom who isn't spending as much time embedding this routine is just diving in with the question straight away, they're going to probably do a bit better, those kids, because they're not having this, this kind of sunk cost where they're having to, you know, practice the routine rehearse and so on so you get this dip in short-term performance but once that routine kind of becomes embedded and automated then you're flying because you can concentrate the kids can focus a lot more attention on thinking about the idea as well and i get the sense that that's true for some of the regulation and relationships things that if you spend that time initially explaining why we're doing this okay it's going to take a bit longer but once you get that buy-in and the kids particularly then start internalizing it and do it themselves, that's when the kids are going to fly. So I really like this idea of this valley of latent potential. And I say that to the kids, look, this is going to be a bit slow going. So I'm going to tell you why we're doing this. We're going to practice doing it and so on. And you're going to be thinking, oh, for flipping it, just speed things up. Let's crack on. But once we get this embedded, then we're, we're, we're going to fly. So I find that quite a useful concept whenever I'm introducing anything anything new to the kids. So that was just one thing I wanted to say. I've got, I'll, I'll let you come back on that. I've just got one more thing to add. Yeah, well. oh, I love that. I love that, Craig. And I'm, I'm sorry I missed it the first time around through Atomic Habits. It's actually a book I recommended to my year 12 students this year because I think yeah. it's just so fantastic. Um, but that's great. And, and in many ways, that's why I'm so interested in self-regulated learning and that's why I'm doing my PhD in that issue right because you know schools accountability high stakes exam marks all these things we're pushing towards they they kind of push us into a mode of instruction where we feel like we don't have time to embrace that valley of latent potential we're like well I could spend the first 10 weeks of the year really helping students to learn how to check their own understanding, find new questions in the book that help give them practice, navigate, you know, Khan Academy to really find the videos, um, talk to each other about their learning and set goals for the next week and then reflect back on it. Like all this stuff, which is so important, but like in that time, learning is going to be a lot slower than if you just cracked on and, and, and push them through. And this was something that's, you know, you mentioned Sammy Kempner before, but at the end of my podcast with him, he, he was asking some big questions. He was like, I'm, I have questions about whether the way that we teach puts students into universities that know heaps of stuff, but without all that structure, they're going to fall yeah. apart. So I th- it's kind of like this, it's, it's a cost-benefit analysis. It's really like how much should we sacrifice now for potential benefits in the future? Um, so yes. it's, 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 a, it's a big issue just like at the, 
micro classroom level, like you were talking about, Craig, establish this entry routine. So we save two minutes every day, but also at the overall education, you know, how much, how, how much are we going to focus on this self-regulation stuff to create fantastic learners or how much are we going to focus on just charging through and making sure they got all the good stuff in their brains? That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And the um, the other thing I was thinking as well, I'm obsessed with retrieval and I have been for, it was one of the first kind of big kind of game changing ideas when I was reading uh, research for the first time, this notion of, you know, whether it's Bjork's work or thinking about the forgetting curve or whatever it may be. But what I've started thinking about recently is whenever you look at retrieval opportunities, whether they're like, we call them do nows at the start of the lesson over here, or whether it's a low stakes quiz or whatever it is, it always seems to be um, asking students to retrieve, like in my case, mathematical ideas, like how do you add together two, you know, add together these two fractions or factorize this quadratic or whatever. But what I've started experimenting with recently with the schools I've been working with is including routines as part of retrieval opportunities so not just and you can do this on two levels so you can say okay uh, question one add these two fractions question two describe the five parts of our routine for answering diagnostic questions so you can do that that works quite well but what works even better is if you say um like question one add these two fractions question two why do we um, answer diagnostic questions in silence or why do we enter the room in this way so it's not just recalling the routine it's recalling the justification for the routine mm. which I think strengthens it so and my justification for doing this is if we we know now that if we want kids to remember things we've got to provide retrieval opportunities well if we want them to remember routines perhaps that's something we need to embed as well, well what, what do you think of that all is that is that the worst thing you've ever heard or do you reckon there's something in there Mate, I'm smiling from ear to ear. I absolutely love that idea. It's fantastic. <laughs> and, and you know, like this morning I was making starters for my maths class and tomorrow I will build some of that stuff into my starters. I think that's a fantastic idea. It's reminded me back to, taking me back to my first year of teaching, actually. I was ta- teaching a really quite a rough class that I was struggling with a lot. <laughs> and to the, to the extent that I had to make a swearing rule in the classroom, right? And the swearing rule was, um, it's okay you know, I understand that transitioning, this was students who often many were kind of um, had experienced trauma in their lives and were, were struggling with that regulation. I said, it's understandable that there's a bit of a transition from the schoolyard to the classroom, right? Yeah. If I hear a swear word in the first 15 minutes of the lesson, you know, I'll, I'll look at you, I'll kind of, you know, let you know, but I'm not, there's not going to be anything. But part of being an adult is learning where it's appropriate to swear yes. and where it's not appropriate to swear. So we're going to have this kind of easing in, but from the 15 minute mark, if I hear a swear word from anybody, um, that's going to be a detention, uh, right? And so, and so that's actually something that I put into the space repetition software that I was yeah. using with those students, which was, you know, what's the swear word rule? And so yes. they would retrieve that. And so, yeah, it's something that I did in some ways, but not with working memory and things like that, which I should do, that you've reminded me of, Craig. So that's great. And I will be doing that tomorrow. That's my only insight I've got for the next hour or so. So let's just milk that. Uh, oh, well, you, you, you had the valley, valley of latent potential as <laughs> well, Craig. True. Don't see yourself short. That's true. That's true. Um, just before we move on from regulation and relationships, um, Ollie, um, any reactive um, strategies up your sleeve? Because sometimes, obviously, we, we can plan for everything. We can be really proactive, but then things go wrong and stuff. So, so do you want to just describe some of those that you talked about? Yeah. So one of the, one of the important things, one of the ideas that, I've found really helpful is the idea of um, ratio of corrective um, 
corrective to kind of supportive feedback that we give students. So something that we want to really make sure, it's it's very easy to notice when students are stuffing, stuffing around and to say, you know, Craig, stop doing that, uh, focus on your work, whatever it might be. That was a horrible way to pull a student up, by the way. You want to, <laughs> you want to describe, direct and offer limited choice. Craig, you're playing with the curtains. Pick up your pencil and continue on question two, please. Um, you can either do this now or you can do it at lunchtime. There we nice. go. That would be that would be much better. Um, <laughs> completely lost my train of thought now. Oh, yeah. So it's very easy to identify those kinds of things. But if students hear from us only those corrective things, that's really going to be negative. So if if we know that there are students in our classroom who we're going to have to offer a lot of corrective advice to, which is a, a reactive response, it's really helpful for us to be reactive to their good things. So many people suggested a ratio of at least, you know, three to one or, you know, five to three, something like that. Supportive kind of great job, congratulations to corrective feedback. So if I know that there's students in my class who I'm going to have to correct a lot, I will purposefully like look for stuff that they're doing right and just walk around and say, you've been focusing really well for the last five minutes, Craig. Just, just you know, building them up like that. So that's that's one of the things. That react to what they're doing positively. Another and thing, just on uh, that, really sorry to interrupt you all. Just on, on that, I think it's really interesting as well. The I personally think that's much more powerful when you do it in that quiet kind of one-to-one way versus it becomes really patronising, embarrassing, doesn't it? If you're doing it in front of the whole class, oh Craig. I love what you're doing there. That's amazing. Whenever the rest of the class has been doing that all lesson anyway, Craig gets embarrassed. The rest of the class are thinking, why is he making a big thing about that? The mm. one-to-one's the key to that. Would you agree there? Yeah, 100%. And often, if you've got a thing that you develop, like it could just be like finger two taps on the table. That always means just nice. good job. Like, you know, doing a great job, Craig. And then That's after true. you've done that a few times, you, you don't even have to say, you just go around and just two taps on the table. And they're like, oh, yeah. That's nice. Um, Something like that can be can be really good. And but but you know also to add to what you were saying, I think sometimes the public stuff can be good. So even with my year twelves this year, um, I'm doing student of the week, right? And student of the week's just like I just wanted to acknowledge this week. Um, Craig did a great job. He's he was just really actually the last one. uh, I'll say you know I'll call him Mac. Last last week it was Mac, and actually last week I forgot to do it. And on Monday, the, my Year Twelve boys were like, "Sir, who was student of the week last week?" <laughs> right? So they really care. And I was like, "It's it's Mac because he's been really punctual with his work, homework every time." And something that I really love he's been doing about his homework is every, every time he emails it to me, he sends a really polite message. He says, ah. "Good good good evening, Mister Lovell. Please find attached." exercises 3b and 3c i hope you're having a great evening and that just makes me really happy you know and so the ability to explicitly say that and then you know lo and behold the next day a lot of the emails that i received didn't just say nothing and with an (laughs) unnamed pdf attached they actually told me you know said hope you're having a a good job so i think there's a a place for that as well yeah i agree that's really nice that's really nice um yeah so any more of these these reactive ones i really like that idea i really like the idea of the the ratio and anything else that springs to mind yeah so another idea here is this this is to do with more that hyper arousal dissociation kind of shame thing where where we've got a student who's really struggling and what we could what we might see is that they might be going to like a downward spiral right they might be really starting to have a meltdown and laurel laurel downy downy laurel downy i always get stuck on words on your podcast craig i don't know what it is speaking <laughs> about being nervous, presence, it is you, you make you make me nervous <laughs> laurel downy 
trauma-informed expert. Um, she, she talked to me a lot about this when she came on the podcast. Uh, she talked about disrupting those downward spirals. So if we see a student starting to lose it, what can we do? So she, she said some of the things we can do is ask them to do a simple task, which will get them out of that spiral. So um, something that's simple is just say, oh, could you, could you, would you be able to open the window for me? And they're kind of like, what? Oh, okay. And you know, they kind of get up, they get moving, they go, they get a bit of fresh air when they open the window, they come back and they're suddenly kind of a bit snapped out of it. Um, if you've got some stuff in your classroom, like two things of pens or crayons that are usually sorted in a specific way, but they've become jumbled. You say, oh, could you just sort this out for me? I'll put the red ones here and the blue ones here. Or, or, or just get them to, you know, take some breaths, take some deep breaths, you know, let's say you can um, breathe in for the longest and then breathe out for the longest, yes. stuff like that. Just, just to get them, get them out of their body a little bit and distract them um, can, can be helpful. Counting things can be helpful as well. Um, so that's another one. Another one is um, the idea of time in, not time out. This was another thing that Laurel was talking about. Often we, often we give students time out. We send them away if they're if they're playing up or if they're misbehaving. But for students who haven't had that safe and stable attachment, often having time out can be the scariest thing for them. Yeah. So Laurel had this um, analogy. She said students with safe and stable attachment, like Isaac, they 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 feel like there's an in, uh, an invisible rubber band connecting them to the people they care about right so they know he, isaac knows hopefully he might be bawling downstairs but i'm pretty sure he knows <laughs> that if you say um i'm sorry i'm talking to ollie now isaac i'll come and play with you later he knows that if that happens he can leave and there's this inevitability yeah. that you'll both come back together again but for people who haven't got that people who haven't had that safe and stable early attachment when they hear go away now there's no like oh but we'll come back again so that yes. can actually cause them to be incredibly stressed out so she said rather than um you know sending them away you can say come and sit next come and sit here right next to me and have them right next to you they you know they know there's something changing and that they've got to kind of you know, bring, bring things back a bit or, or focus a little bit more, but you actually, you bring them in. And, you know, my, my kind of hesitation was that was like, well, what if they just want like more attention? What if they want to be closer mm. to you and, and things like that? And Laurel had a really interesting response, which was, so what? Like they want that because that's what they need. Yes. So give it to them. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay. That's a good point. Um, so yeah, yeah just uh, I really like that idea, time in, not time out. And and the final one, which I think this is basically a public service announcement, Craig. Um, <laughs> when when people have experienced this is this is like a reactionary thing. So if something happens in the in your school that's quite a graphic trauma, there could be a, a car crash outside the school gates. It could even be like an animal got stuck in something yeah. and got chopped up, or like whatever it might be. Um, a big part of trauma associated from those kind of events is to do with the visual representation. And if there's anyone out there, hopefully I'm not, I'm not, you know, trigger warning, hopefully I'm not triggering anything for anyone, but if anyone's been through a really traumatic experience that included a visual component, you'll find that um, a big thing that's triggering is, you know, you might be when you close your eyes or something and that image returns. So this actually, this actually happened to me. Like I was in at my university college, someone self-harmed very significantly and then kind of rocked up in a common area with like, you know, in a very bad way, essentially. 
Um, and I was finding it very hard to get that image out of my head. And when I went to bed that night, it just kept on recurring. But luckily, I'd recently read a book called Super Better that had this really amazing tip in it, which was basically like to get rid of that memory, you need to write over it. So you need to do something that's really visually stimulating and that can help to wipe that memory because you know we know from retrieval practice right every time you retrieve something including a visual memory it becomes more ingrained yes so you need to disrupt that visual memory so what they recommend it sounds a bit trivial but actually playing tetris will have an enormous effect at kind of writing over that memory so so that night when i experienced this um, traumatic event i kept on like not being able to go to sleep because the image would come back to my mind i'd pull up my phone play Tetris five minutes, try to go to sleep again. And every time that happened over the next few days, I just played Tetris again and again and again. And now I can still kind of see the image and it's not good, but it's it's so much more faded and I feel like I, I avoided a lot of um, trauma through doing that. So I think, yeah, that's, that's just like a general, that's not even for teachers or anything, that's just general life, great, great tip. And that's been validated in scientific experience as well. That's not just like an Ollie level holy level idea that's really really good stuff so that's another important reactive technique there that's amazing that mate that's amazing um one thing i wanted to say before we move on to to leadership and this is just going back to um thinking about kind of working memory retrieval and so on we talked earlier on about how it's important to share these techniques and and the reasons for it with our kids with something like um some of the retrieval practice and effective revision techniques. I've often found getting the parents involved in this and informing them is a really important thing as well. But reading through the regulations and relationships chapter in your book, I got the sense that perhaps because of the nature of it, this perhaps isn't something we'd, we'd want to blanket involve all the parents in because some of these attachment issues could come potentially from, from troubled home lives and so on and so forth. Is this something that you kind of keep in the school with the kids as opposed to, 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 to go home with it? Yeah, look, look, definitely not an expert on this, but I, and, and it would no doubt be a case of a, a situation of a case by case kind yeah. of a, thing but but laurel did make that point she did say you know be aware that many um adults for example may be triggered by being spoken to someone who they know to be a teacher in a certain way because they themselves may have had very negative experiences in school so yeah it's definitely definitely something to be aware of that's interesting. Right. Let's talk uh, leadership, if that's okay, Ollie, because this, again, well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons this hasn't really come up too much on my podcast. I, 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 I like speaking to heads of maths and because I'm fascinated about running maths departments. And one of, I think our first conversation when you came on the show, I absolutely loved when you talked about how you run your um, departmental meetings, particularly at the start of the year where you're asking the teachers what you can do to help them and all that. I thought that's absolutely brilliant. But in terms of kind of running schools and, 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 and being senior leaders, it's just something that has never been on my kind of agenda to, to be involved in myself. So I'm really bad with stuff like that. I, I tend to speak to people who, who, who do things that I'm really interested in. I've got a bit of a selfish reason for. So it was, a, it was quite an eye-opener reading your leadership um, your leadership chapter. So again, daft question to begin with, but, but why is leadership so important in schools, Ollie? Yeah, so I guess the way I see it is what really makes and like an amazing school like there are lots of lots of good schools out there but what makes an amazing school is one where it's got a real a real kind of character a real 
culture and a real sense of what it means to be a member of that school and what that school mm-hmm. school is doing. And inevitably, that sense of purpose will come from the head. So if we think of any school that's kind of, you know, like big in the news and has has that kind of culture, like um, I'm sure we're all thinking of Michaela with Catherine Burblesing as the head or, you know, the self managed learning college with Ian Cunningham as the head or the XP Trust, which is getting a lot of, you know, a lot of press at the moment with Gwyn Harry and Andy Sprakes, for example. These are all inspiring people with a really clear vision um, mm. and who are setting setting the course for where things are going. So I think that's absolutely crucial. But another way to think about it and a, a way that's, you know, I've kind of feel like I've had experience with a little bit is, is what leadership does for teachers. So Poor leadership can make the best, the most enthusiastic, the most energized teachers feel despondent mm. and to the point that they want to actually even quit the profession, yeah. right? That's the damage that poor leadership can do. Good leadership can help the teachers who are struggling the most to actually thrive in the classroom and have a really, really rewarding um, career and to continue to contribute for years to come. So I, I just think, you know, everything flows down from the top. Uh, so leadership is absolutely crucial. That's brilliant. That's all. Um, and I, I really liked the way you broke this down into this mission mindset management. Is it okay if you don't mind, just give us a, a bit of an overview of that and how they relate to leadership, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So I, I guess one of the things I love doing is trying to structure ideas yeah, right? yeah so yeah we, we both love it and we what i what i've done here is i've just interviewed you know james hanscom you know dylan william rachel mcfarlane tom sherrington many many leaders vivian robinson many and many others and just tried to say what do they do and how can i get all these ideas in in in, in a way that makes sense and sits together and also make it catchy, of course. It's got to be catchy, Craig. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. the three M's of leadership, <laughs> mission, mindset, and management. So mission is basically the idea that a leader needs to have a well-crafted and well-communicated vision for the school, which is around the why. You know, we've all heard about Simon Sinek and his famous TED Talk and all that kind of thing. But And that's really what I was talking about in terms of that, that purpose. So there's got to be a mission. Without a mission, um, we're going to struggle. Yeah. Mindset is about approaching leadership in a way that you, you're actually bringing people along with you and you're open to learning. It's, it's, it's essentially, it's the way of leadership. Mm. Um, how you've got to be as a person for, for people to want to follow you. Mm. And management is, is really about the nuts and bolts of running a school. You have to be organized. You have to develop systems. You have to have effective hiring procedures um, you have to have clear delineation of roles and set that up if you want things to tick over. And so I guess maybe one of the most helpful things I can talk about is 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 what happens when we miss any one of these elements. Yeah. So, for example, if a school is missing a mission, they might have mindset management right, but if the leader is missing a mission, then you basically can't have alignment because there's nothing to be aligned with. You might have a school with you know good processes and then they might the leader might be like really good at at socializing with people and getting them on side but there's nothing to really get them on side with and it means that you're going to end up you might end up with lots of great teachers but they might have lots of different philosophies of teaching yes and you're just going to struggle to get anything happened and and really implemented with fidelity if you're missing mindset you could have a great mission the 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 leader could really 
know exactly where they want to take the school and they could know exactly the systems they want to set up to get it there. They might be great at organizing, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of the school. But unfortunately, they don't know how to bring anyone along with them. And so people people start to drop off, right? They can't manage that retention. Um, they can't really build people up and 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 harness the strengths of their team to build a diverse team. And so that's going to be a real challenge as well. And if we haven't got management, you know, we've got a leader who's got a lot of vision. They're really good people person, but it's fundamentally an unsustainable enterprise because they they don't have the ability to set up the systems to delegate and, and do things like that. So it's it's just going to be an unsustainable situation and, and likely they're going to burn out and the organization in general is going to burn yes. out. So, so that's the three Ms, the way I've thought about it, mission mindset and management. I like it. Lovely structure, that's all. Now, when I'm reading this, a lot of it seemed to be um, aimed towards uh, head teachers, but I, I was also sensing that like a head of department could apply some of these things as well, right? Now, obviously, they don't have as much control um, over certain aspects of how the schools run, the culture, the rules and regulations, but in certain influencing their team of five, eight, however many it may be, there's, there's, there's definite things that, that heads of department can take from this, right? Yeah, 100%. And so, you know, for, for mission, for example, a, a department lead really needs to have a mission. Mm. Crucially, that mission has to align with the school's mission. If it doesn't, yes. you get a range of problems. And that, that, that's an issue that I, I myself had, right? I had a, had a vision for a, a math department, but fundamentally didn't line up with what the school wanted. And so we had to go our separate ways. Same with mindset. You've got to bring people on side. And same with management. You've still got to do that de delegation. You've still got to um, manage people, get the nuts and bolts working, set up the processes at just at the micro level. So 100% just as applicable. And I'll tell you what I'm interested in here, Ollie. I don't know if it's the same in, in, in Oz, but um, often what happens over here, particularly with maths teachers, is they get put into leadership roles pretty early on in their career. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the most ridiculous thing for a teacher to have been taught two years and then they find themselves second in department and maybe three. You know, after three years, they're running quite a large department, mm. and often it's because. There's a bit of a recruitment and retention crisis for maths teachers over here. So the way to keep your best maths teachers or attract your best maths teachers is to pay them more. But because of the system, the only way to pay them more is to give them more responsibility and so on. So you get um, teachers kind of thrust into, into leadership roles. Now, what's interesting about that is many of them perhaps haven't got their teaching to the point where it needs to be. Um, so actually they're having to spend a lot of their attention kind of thinking about planning lessons and so on and so forth. So the leadership thing kind of gets put on the back burner or they get so bogged down in the leadership side of things, but actually it's, it's not leading in the way you're talking about it. It's leading in the sense of filling out spreadsheets, hitting deadlines or, you know, reports, targets, all this kind of thing. So I guess that long rambling um, kind of, uh, intro there is to ask the question like if you find yourself it, like it's one thing if you're an aspiring leader and you've got a bit of time to prep for it I'm interested in what your advice there would be but I'm also interested in your advice if you find yourself almost thrust into a leadership position perhaps at a departmental level that you don't feel quite prepared for mm. what can you do to kind of upskill yourself there yeah that's a great question it's interesting because 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 one of the one of the questions you had um for me for this podcast was you know what practical things can current or aspiring leaders do to get better which is similar to this but you didn't give that kind of preamble so my my first part of my answer for that was going to be get yourself under good leaders 
right? Yes. So it, it yeah, is, it is like hundred, if you can do it, if you can do yeah. it, just get yourself under good leaders because you will learn so much from them, especially if you've yes. got your antenna up and you actually pay attention to what they do. You ask them questions like, oh, in this meeting you did this, why did you do it that way? Yeah. Um, stuff like that. So if you can do that, 100% do it. But I mean, you've, you've given me a scenario in which that's not possible. I would say, yeah, there's a few things. In your early stages of your career, get your head around the content as much as you can. Anticipate that these kind of situations are going to fall in your, potentially fall in your lap, especially if you're good. And if you can just, as we were talking about, prepare as much as you can beforehand, so mm-hmm. ease that working memory burden. You've just got to get on top of that content. So become an exam marker if that's something you can do. Keep doing PD. Do Craig's Barton's online courses on maths teaching. <laughs> buy Craig Barton's book. Um, <laughs> all you know, just really get on top of on on top of your content. Um, another thing is. And this, this is kind of general everywhere, but try, see if try to understand yourself as a person, because often when people struggle a lot in leadership positions, it's because they don't have a clear understanding of themselves, of their strengths, and of their weaknesses. And when you mm. when you spend the time to actually reflect and and do that self work, you can start to recognize like where you know you might not actually be well suited to leading this particular task within the department and that enables you to bring other people into um, the management of the department and the leadership of the department that are going to complement you but without that self-awareness you're really going to struggle and you're you're likely going to have some bungles there one another idea is just recognize that leadership is not through emails (laughs) <laughs> this and this is one of the easiest mistakes to make, right? Because we are we are time poor. Like you were saying, yeah. you know, if you if you get sent into um, a leadership role and you've just you know you you just get it finding your feet, you're time poor. You want to make some changes. You want to do this stuff. You know, you want to implement retrieval practice. Sending an email saying let's all do retrieval practice or something like that, or, or sending an email when you've got to have a tricky conversation. It's just mm-hmm. very, very unlikely that it's going to work. So you just got to make a mental note and make a note, try to catch people, try to have conversations. And every conversation could be a positive experience. Whereas emails, just getting the tone right is so hard. Yes. Um, and and it's you can't react to their facial expression or anything like that. So that that's just like a really practical thing that you can do. Um, and this is one of my favorite. When I had Tom Tom Sherrington on the podcast, and I, the episode was called the most important thing because I think, you know, no one more so than Tom Sherrington has their their head across every single part of what a school takes. And what I said was, you know, one of the questions was, what's the most important thing when it comes to new leaders? And his answer was fantastic. And this is paraphrasing, but it was basically recognize that your job is no longer to do a job, a good job of teaching your class. Yeah. Your job is to help other people do a good job of teaching their class. So that might actually mean that you spend less time focusing on your own students. And making and making that shift is a very hard one to make, yes. right? To actually say, I'm going to step back a little bit from playing the perfect lessons, the perfect retrievals, doing all this follow-up so that I can support eight, five, three, ten yes. teachers to do that uh, and to develop the systems to do it more effectively. So that is, that's really a mindset shift, but it's, it's really necessary to make 
if you want to run a good department instead of just be a good teacher. That's brilliant. And again, just going back to something we said earlier, that's so much easier to, well, it's not easy, but it's it's easier to do if you've got some years of experience of teaching on, under your belts. And again, this is my public um, service announcement, Ollie. And I know it's, it's, it's so hard to avoid this because you get lured in with the money, but get a few years of just pure teaching under your belts first before you start taking on responsibility because it's a long career as a teacher and you're going to find it so much easier going forward if you're, as much of your teaching is to a standard where worst case scenario, you can walk into a lesson having not really thought about what you're going to do and still deliver something that's going to uh, that's going to be good for, for the kids. 100% and get under those good leaders. Like, you know, you're going to learn so much more in a good school with a good head of department in one year then you're yeah. going to learn, trying to learn stuff, irrespective of how good Tools for Teachers is and how I wish I taught maths was. You're going to learn so much more if you're under a good head in, in one year versus five years of, of doing our online courses, Craig. I hate to admit it, but it's no, true. No, I think you might be right, unfortunately. You might be right. Um, is there anything else about leadership you wanted to, to, to mention or before we move to the final section? Um, yeah, just, just one thing really, which is it's kind of runs counter to the point that 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 you that we've both been making craig but it's also you know don't wait for too long and this okay. is a message especially to to females because i've seen a lot of guys be willing i was one of them it took on a senior department head in my second year we just for some reason think we're going to manage it right <laughs> but you know i've i've mentored a number of female teachers who are much better than me when i took on that role much yeah. better emotional intelligence, much better pedagogically, much better content knowledge, but they didn't want to take it on. And, you know, I don't want to make it like a gender thing, but that's just a pattern that I've noticed in my own experience. Mm. And so, you know, ask some other people, do you think I would be able to manage this? Do you think I'm well suited? And if people are encouraging you, you know, take that on, take that on board as well. That's interesting. Yeah, good point. Very good point. Uh, right, Alt. So I want to move into this section, which I'm calling help helping people uh, improve. If you want to kind of sack off the senior leader part of this, because you feel we've already covered it, that's that's absolutely fine. So the way I, I was trying to think how to structure this, but I think this will work okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm saying here, imagine you're going to be working with three teachers who want to get even better at their job. So one of them's a trainee or a novice teacher. Someone's a teacher who's been teaching for 20 years. And the third one uh, is a senior leader. And having obviously read so many books yourself and also recorded so many podcast episodes, if we've got each of those people and they're wanting to, they're, they're overwhelmed with all the different resources they could access. I wonder if you could recommend for each of them a book that they should read and an episode of your podcast to listen to. So, so should we start with a trainee novice teacher? Yeah, sure. So we've got trainee novice teacher. We've got teacher who's been teaching for 20 years, I think I think you said, or a very yep. experienced person, then senior. Um, and we're thinking about books and or podcasts or episodes of the ERRR you asked. So I'm actually not going to do one. I'm going to do three at each level. Okay, let's do hope it. Let's do hope it. hope that's okay. Yeah, let's okay. go for it. So, so for a trainee teacher, um, I really think, okay, well, first of all, I have to start with another disclaimer, which is that what people should engage with is what they need to personally. So, you know, that yes. famous David O's. Ozubel quote. I don't know. Dylan William knows how to pronounce. Oh it, yes, I, yeah. Um, you know, if I had to reduce all of educational psychology to just one principle, I would say this: the most important single factor influencing learning is what the learner already knows. Ascertain this, and teach him or her 
accordingly. So that's that's the key point. Like I, I'm not going to be able to say something which is perfect for everyone, but um, on the balance of my experience at each of these levels and from, from the people I've managed to interview, here goes. So for the trainee teacher, <laughs> like I said, uh, I've actually structured this the same way as I structured the book. I think the number one thing is to get your head around explicit instruction. Um, I think a fantastic book on that is Explicit Direct Instruction by John Hollingsworth and Sylvia Ibarra. And I, I I had John on the podcast, so I really recommend getting into that explicit direct instruction. Will you For, send me links to these all just so people don't have to write them down? Yeah, 100%. We'll, we'll put these in the show notes. Amazing. Number two, uh, behavior management. Bill Rogers, absolute champion. Um, I find Bill best to consume uh, orally or in video. I find it's harder to understand where he's where he's coming from in in his writing so um the episode i did with bill is one of the most popular ones he's also got videos on youtube and things like that bill rogers um and then third motivation and both pep mccray and harry fletcher would are absolutely fantastic on this and i I believe you had them both on your podcast as well who's the best out of them two ollie well mate (laughs) ollie messing (laughs) look i don't know i'm good friends with both of them and um Yeah, we'll, we'll swear. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of a teacher who's been teaching for 20 years, I mean, mm-hmm. I would like to think that someone who's been teaching for that long has the basics down. Yeah. You know, they've, they're good at, they've got solid instruction, uh, behavior management, you know, they've got it down to a T. Although, you know, there's always always surprises that come with, with new students every year. Uh, and hopefully the motivations into place as well. So I'd be thinking that, as a teacher gets more experienced, they're starting to broaden their concept of what it means mm. to teach and, and learning things like that. So um, I really love James Mannion and Kate McAllister's work. On Their book is Fear is a Mind Killer, but they they work on the, the learning skills curriculum, the kind of stuff I'm really interested in, building more effective learners. Um, I found this is a pod, one of my podcasts that hasn't been appreciated much as I'd hoped, but um, <laughs> Janet Kolodna on project-based inquiry science. Um, oh. I don't know if the podcast captured the the, the, the depth and the richness of her work um, and, and did it justice, but the resources that she and her team created on taking an inquiry approach to science through projects are absolutely phenomenal. They're not just these open-ended do-whatever-you-things. They're specifically targeted to help students to think in in the way of you know here's an experiment here are the variables we're going to use the real scientific terminology we're going to do poster presentations we're going to it's it's just so well thought out and structured and um yeah get get into that 100 percent. and then the third one is one of the most popular episodes of the etf podcast but also one of the most um controversial this was um naomi fisher on self-directed learning and basically oh, yes yeah naomi basically told us to, to close all our schools down no she didn't really but <laughs> she she was arguing against many of the the things that are kind of orthodoxy within schools and i think it's just great for us to listen to stuff like that because it's so easy to get uh, you know one of the one of the uh, my favorite quotes was from harry fletcher wood when i I, at the end of the podcast i always say do you have a call to action and he said you know find smart people you disagree with and read their work Mm -hmm. and i just think that's so healthy for us to do and i think nomi fisher is a a great a great example of that and then for senior leaders number one go-to is probably vivian robinson in terms of just helping people to understand how to well she her book's called reduce change to increase improvement but really it's about her, her approach to having conversations, how to lead change in a way that engages with people's 
theories of action engages with their core beliefs to generate change that's actually sustainable rather than by just kind of implementing stuff and bypassing their core beliefs in a way that as soon as you turn your back, they're going to go straight back to what they used to do. So can't go past her. And then two other great, great leaders, uh, in addition to Tom Sherrington, who I already mentioned, two other great leaders uh, who I interviewed, Rachel McFarlane. I think she's just one of the most in, inspiring leaders who I've ever I've ever encountered. Encountered, and I've done some work with her since, and she consistently uh, amazes and impresses me in the way she runs groups, runs meetings, things like that. And also, a really fun episode was with um, James Hanscom, based on his book, um, "A Culture of Ethos." I think it's called. It's basically a book of of school speeches. Right, so all the speeches that he, or a bunch of a collection of thirty or so of the speeches that he gave to his his school, and look, James is in another league. Most people aren't going to be able to do what James does, but it's just really uh, fun and inspiring to read about the ways that uh, a head teacher can speak speak their vision in a creative and artistic uh, way to, to their whole school body. Brilliant. Some fantastic recommendations. And yeah, Ollie very kindly will send through those links. So if you go to the podcast show notes page, you'll, you'll be able to access those. That's great. <laughs> Just something you, you mentioned there, Ollie. Again, it's, it's it, when two podcasters get together, it's very hard to not speak about podcasting. But um, you mentioned there that like a, one of your your favorite episodes that you think gets a bit underappreciated. I've got a load of those as well. And I look at the kind of view, the, the listening figures. And I'm thinking, why aren't more people listening to this particular one? This is absolute gold. I'm like, well, what are people, what are people missing there? So I've got one from a few years ago with Colin Foster about problem solving, which changed my way of thinking about problem solving. And yet it's it's about 60, well, it's about about 20% of the listens of someone like Dylan William, which is an amazing episode itself. But I think, no, we need to bump that up a bit. And mm-hmm. then I did one. I did a research in action series where I worked with, um, interviewed people from Loughborough University's Math Centre. And there's some fantastic episodes. And one of them is about comparative judgments in mathematics, which I've had Daisy on the, the podcast, obviously, before. And my, my challenge there has always been, what does this look like for maths? And mm. Ian Jones, he just spoke about like amazing ways that you could assess students' problem solving using comparative judgment and stuff. And I'm thinking, more people need to flip and listen to this. But you, what, what can you do, Ollie? What can you do apart from put the episodes out there, you know? Out of well, our control pl- on it. Plug it in a sub- subsequent episode like you just have, Craig. I'm <laughs> exactly, sure. I, I'm exactly. confident that people, including myself, I, I've listened to the Colin Foster one, but I haven't haven't listened to the comparative judgment one. Um, yeah, go back to it, people. So I will be doing do. it. That's do you want to plug anyone, Ollie, whilst, you, whilst you're here? Any episode for people to check out? Jeff, definitely the Craig Barton episode. <laughs> episode, I think it was 20A and 20B. Yeah, he was the first right. person to come on the podcast he's good twice. In. He's good. He's, 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 he's pretty good. Now, that was, it was, it was a great discussion. And, you know, we, um, we had to do, I think, six hours or something insane yeah. at the end of it. Um, so, yeah, a lot of richness in there. <laughs> That's great. Right, Ollie. So to bring things to a close here, I'm interested in what's next for you. So in particular, what specific areas of education, research or practice are you most interested in finding more about and, and how are you going to go about doing it? Well, when I find some more time, <laughs> I really want to, I really enjoyed a podcast from earlier on this year. Um, James Mannion runs the Rethinking Ed podcast. I'm not sure if you've listened mm. to it, but it's a fantastic podcast. James does a great job of getting um, diverse thinkers on. And one of the people he had on was um, Mary Helen Imordino Yang talking about the role of emotions in learning. And so the model of working memory that that I often talk about, which was popularized by Daniel Willingham, is, you know, you've got the environment, pay attention to stuff in the environment, 
um, goes in your working memory, think about it, blah, 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 goes in your long-term memory. I'm sure listeners will be familiar with that. What Mary Helen suggests is that the thing that drives attention in the first place is actually our emotions. So we talk about, we talk about you know, the first step is students pay attention to stuff. But Mary Helen is like, the first step is students have an emotion. And after the emotion, then they pay attention to stuff. So it's like this causal chain, chain which I'm like, well, maybe I've started the causal chain in the wrong spot. Maybe I need to take a step back. And there's heaps of really interesting work that she's done. Um, that I would that I would love to explore more. Then there's all that stuff about early kind of learning sciences work and, and giants of the field that I earlier mentioned. Yes. I'd love to explore more. Um, that's just a matter of time. Um, yeah, and just uh, just and and everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Just with the emotion stuff again. I, I don't know enough slash anything about that, but it's well when Peps came on um, on my show and he first started talking about. Um, motivation being the, the thing that comes before we start worrying about kids paying attention. What are they paying attention to? Why are they paying attention to? It'd be interesting how emotions fit into that, whether they're part mm. of motivation, whether it's a separate channel. Yeah, I'll be, yeah. If you can figure all that out, Ollie, I'll be, I'll be looking I'll forward let you to, know. to listen to that. That'd be great. And final question, Ollie, I thought we'd go for a biggie to, to, to finish here. So hopefully, um, well, you certainly will be keeping doing this for, for, for many, many years. Um, and, Fingers crossed, we'll we'll uh, we'll, we'll keep as uh, friends and, and uh, fellow podcasters. So if I have you back for a conversation in five years' time, and I say to you, "What are you up to now, Ollie? What do you what do you reckon you're going to be saying there?" I wish I knew, Craig. No, I I I, I hope that there will be uh, potentially a little Isaac jumping on my lap <laughs> um, during our conversation, Craig. I think that would be really nice sometime in the next five years, at least. Um, I'm getting on, so we've probably got to start thinking about that kind of thing. Um, something I'm really interested in at the moment is is online courses. Um, like I, like I mentioned at the start, I've just just launched cognitive load theory one, and I just think yeah. it's it's a way that you can provide content to people in an engaging way. You know, often it's easier to process than in the form of a book. Um, it can be built on a book. So I find writing books really good as a way to structure ideas, but then yes. as a way of sharing them. And then you can also build in stuff like checks for understanding, feedback, um, even sometimes communities that you can't do with books and you can't do in the same yeah. way with podcasts. So I, I am really excited about exploring that area more and potentially just making stuff more available to people who are at different parts of the world, can't get here, can't get there, have kids, whatever it might be. So um, that's something I'm really excited about. I, I'm really keen to keep involved with schools. I just, like every day I go to school, I come home and, because, you know, there's, there's option, you know, you've, you've, you've um, stepped out of the formal classroom, though you still work directly with several schools, Craig. Um I don't know. I it's kind of a, an option or something I think about, but there's something I I actually don't know what's going to happen. But there's something that every day I come home, I'm like, oh, it was really nice, you know, being in class today when I had this interaction with this kid, you know, or this or this other student, whatever. It's it. There's something really energizing about being in the classroom. So letting go of that, I think it would have to be supplemented by something else. Like maybe working with teachers would do the same thing. I'm not sure yet. Um, but I feel like something like that would have to be there. Um, and apart from that, I look, I just, I'd love to have more time to read. I haven't mm. for the last few couple of months with the PhD and finishing the book and, and a bunch of other things, I haven't had as much time to read as I'd like to. So hopefully I've re read another 
200 books in the next 300,000 books in the next five years, but I don't know how, how likely that is. Can I just chuck a little bonus question if you've got, got Go time, on. Ollie? Just thinking about the, the online courses. So so when Michael Pershing was on the show, um, one question I really wanted to ask him, um, and, and we did, but we didn't speak about it as in depth as I wanted to, was obviously Michael has read everything there is to read on worked examples. He's obsessed with examples. So I said to Michael, if you were... Um, if you were setting up your, if you were becoming a YouTuber and you wanted to set up your own YouTube channel to teach people mathematics, knowing all that you know about worked examples, what would they look like? How would you, how could you replicate like self-explanation effects and all that in terms of YouTube? So a similar question to you all, like you've obviously done a hell of a lot of learning, a hell of a lot of reading. What is it that you think makes an online course work and perhaps you could use the example of your cognitive load theory one or, or things you want to do in the future what what features are there because there's a real danger i mean there's big advantages of online courses you've said you can access them everywhere but there's also that danger that they become a bit more of a passive experience because you're not you're not in a room with a load of people there's not like if, if you all of a sudden you're on your phone and you're messing around people know about it if you're in a room mm. whereas if you're just sat you know one-on-one -on -one watching watching something you could potentially drift off any kind of things you've been thinking about about designing online courses based on all the things you know about how we learn and stuff yeah so i think you've definitely got to make stuff active and i think you've got to make it at a at a a number of levels of transfer so so you know this is something i've been thinking about a lot as i've been designing this course but something very simple is just quick even multiple choice questions after each yeah. chapter each three to five minute video that check that understanding and, and provide that reinforcement but that's base level right in addition to them there's also the ability to space the retrieval of those questions so in my course each new chapter whilst we add new short answer questions we're going to review the, the previous ones as well. So hopefully That's by the good. end, they've seen those core ideas over and over again, and it's really sticking for the long term, um, which is something you can do in a really structured way when you have got a, such, such a structured environment like that. But, you know, that's just kind of near transfer stuff. It's better to get, and it's it's good in addition, should I say, to get some real application activities. So something I'm, tr I'm experimenting with this course is I'm actually doing a bit of a call out to teach to say, send me your lesson plans, send me, you know, videos of your class if you have permission from your students, send me resources that I will then um, analyze from a cognitive load theory perspective. And what I'll do is basically, you know, de-identify it, but people have to be happy for me to, um, you know, analyze it. And then I'll be like, okay, we've just learned about this effect or these this series of effects. Here's a resource. You try to analyze it um, as the participant in the online course from the perspective of what we've learned. And in the next video, I'm going to break it down for you and do That's an analysis. Good. So it's kind of that transfer as well. Um, in addition, I think I think there's there's something. One of the things that I'm not sure about yet is the kind of cohort. Um, experience like to what extent making it social is something that would, is really yes. valuable and that's something that I'm thinking about and, and may explore soon um, but I think that's the one element of the classroom that I think maybe online courses you, you, you struggle with a little bit um, but yeah something for me to explore more that's brilliant. We and that's live now, is it? The cognitive load theory. Yeah. Concept? So it's actually I'm I'm building it at the moment. It I hope for it to be at first of June, but it is available. You can you can purchase it. You can pre-purchase it now. That's amazing. Send us a link to that as well, and we'll include that in the show notes. That's brilliant. Sure. Right. Well, this has always been a pleasure. It's it's interesting. Whenever 
Um, so this is early morning. Well, early for me anyway. So we started, well, recording at seven and I woke up this morning. I thought, oh, I'd love to stay in bed here. But then I thought, no, you know what? I'm going to be speaking to Ollie. And it's one of those things where we've spoken many times over the years. And it's just, it's always a fun chat for me all. And most importantly, I always come away learning loads and with tons to think about. So thank you so much for your time. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. I'm sure the course will be uh, fantastic as well. So Ollie Lovell, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me on, Craig. Always a, a pleasure as always. So there you have it. There was my conversation with the fantastic Ollie Lovell. I could chat to Ollie all day. So knowledgeable, so friendly, just a, a really, really nice guy. Now, in the conversation, um, we focused on two areas, regulation and relationship and leadership. And as I mentioned at the introduction, and also during the conversation, the reason I chose those two areas is they're areas that we haven't really uh, delved much into um, over the years on the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. I'm not really sure why, why that is, to be honest with you. But whenever I read them in Ollie's book, I thought, yeah, this, this is something we need, we need to take a deep dive into. Um, I found the stuff on the regulation and relationships fascinating. Um, I love the way it ties into behavior management, but also just much wider, wider things about, you know, being a student, what it is to be in school, uh, the dynamics in the classroom and so on. I found that fascinating. And also the leadership really, really interests me. Um, I don't think I'll ever be a, a senior leader, uh, but again, many teachers listening to this will, will be in that position or even... As soon as you get a few years experience as a teacher, you play a lot of leadership roles in terms of either formally mentoring less experienced teachers or just working with them and having conversations with them and so on and so forth. So I found that stuff fascinating as well. Um, but I just wanted to, to make explicitly clear um, that there's so much more in Ollie's book than that. I mean, the first um, chapter or so focuses on explicit instruction. Um, and that is an area that we've we've done to death um, on the podcast over the years. But that's not to say that I didn't learn absolutely loads whilst whilst reading it. If you've listened to um, any of Ollie's conversations uh, recently, particularly with Dr. Anita Archer, um, there's just so much amazing stuff when it comes to explicit instruction, uh, the role of examples, non-examples, and so on. Um, and again, I could have spoke to Ollie for ages about that, but that's definitely worth diving into in the book. And then the next two chapters are on behavior management and motivation. Now, there are areas we've covered as well with the likes of Tom Bennett on behavior and Peps, McRae, um, uh, and Harry Fletcher Wood on motivation. But again, the way Ollie distills the, the research into that, it's absolutely fascinating. And then there's also chapters on uh, curriculum um, and purposes of education, which, again, I, I, I found fascinating. Look, let me just put it out there. It's a really, really, really good book. It's, it's one of those you can dip into, but it's also one of those that you'll probably want to read cover to cover if you're anything like me. So, so do check it out. Um, final thing I wanted to do, just a reminder from Tools for Teachers to Tips for Teachers. Uh, it's my new project. I'm very, very excited about it. It started off really well. I mean, again, what, Dylan William, what, when you get him on the show, you know, you know you're in for gold. And this format really suited him, I think. You're coming up with five tips. Um, they were just absolutely brilliant, really concise to the point and so on. But there's some absolute cracking guests coming up. I mean, I'll give you a bit of a world exclusive here. So Sammy Kempner, who I spoke about uh, with regard to his appearance on the uh, on Ollie's podcast, I've already recorded that one, and it is absolute gold. 
he talks about his his use of group work and i try and really grill him on this to get the practical tips that make group work work and it's yeah it's it's mind-blowing he's been on a uh, charlie burkett i've recorded that one he's the head of maths at michaela that's a, that's controversial as you can imagine they're all coming up and as i say they're available in audio form as as your usual podcast but i also break the five tips up into short videos as well so you can either watch them on your own or share them with colleagues or whatever so do check that out please um i'm, I'm really excited about making that grow uh, subscribe if you come to the podcast uh, tips for teachers um if you visit the tipsforteachers.co.uk website you'll find links to how to subscribe and so on I'm still going to be keeping the Mr. Barton Maths podcast going, but this is kind of my focus uh, for, for the coming months. I want to grow this into the world's largest free, high-quality CPD portal uh, for, for teachers. So I'm, I'm excited. If you can help me out by supporting that just by watching the videos, listening to the podcast, subscribing, leaving reviews, um, I'd be so, so happy. Anyway, uh, all that remains for me to do is thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music you've heard throughout the show. Uh, thank Ollie Lovell uh, for being an absolutely fantastic guest. And you, my lovely loyal listeners, I know there's been a big gap uh, between uh, Mr. Barton Maths podcast episodes. As I say, this feed will keep going. It's I love doing these long-form deep dives. But if you could also support the Tips for Teachers um, podcast and so on, I'd be eternally grateful. Anyway, I'll shut up now. You take care of yourselves. Bye for now.